This is a Cherish podcast, and I'm your host, Michael Boudreau. I'll be taking you for an inside look behind the glamorous facade of the interior design industry. At a time when every aspect of the business, from sourcing to trends to marketing to dealing with clients, is undergoing rapid change. In the very recent past, when you could get everything from an electric toothbrush to a vintage Joe Ponte chair delivered virtually overnight, it was already hard to convince some clients that it was worth waiting 12 to 16 weeks to have a custom sofa fabricated or to wait three months to have a special rug handwoven in India or China. But now, in the face of supply chain disruptions and shutdowns due to the coronavirus, what is the future for custom pieces? What does it mean for artisans, workrooms, and weavers? And with so many vintage and manufactured options available at the click of a button, is there any longer a need for special pieces? I am fortunate today to have with us three esteemed designers who throughout their careers have created hundreds of custom pieces for their clients, but also embrace antiques and vintage items. First is LA-based designer Madeline Stewart, who is known for her sophisticated and livable approach to the past, embracing styles as diverse as Hollywood deco glamour and arts and crafts warmth to create stylish and practical homes for her clients. Welcome, Madeline. Hello, Michael. Good morning. Good morning. Manhattan and Hamptons-based Robert Stillen brings comfort and elegance to his urbane rooms. Instilled with his love of industrial artifacts and machine-age design, they're contemporary, yet always serene and soothing. Hello, Robert. Hi, Michael. Good morning. Good morning. And finally, we have New York designer Thad Hayes, whose classic rooms are always rigorously elegant and artfully composed, distinguished by his knowledge of both fine and decorative arts and a subtle color palette. Welcome, Thad. Thank you, Michael. So I'm curious, all three of you have very sophisticated clients, and let's put it frankly, wealthy clients, and you've created lots of custom pieces for them over the decades of your careers. But I want to get a sense, how much of your work before, say, the last five or seven years has been custom, and has that amount been decreasing or increasing even before the coronavirus? I'd love to get a sense from each of you how much custom work goes into your projects in general. Like, So let's start with you, Madeline. Ladies first. Thank you, Michael. I actually always did custom, even when I was first starting and didn't have access to some of the more exalted workrooms. I felt in some way as though it was cheating to just walk into a showroom and buy everything that someone else had designed and presented on the floor for, for purchase. I always wanted to do something that was a little more unique or a little just different than what was readily available. I feel like in our business, this is about bespoke. And while I can't stand the word bespoke, and I'm going to kick myself later for even using it, the truth is we're working for clients who want something special. And oftentimes that special thing might be vintage or unique, but as often as not, it's about making something specifically for them. Gotcha. Robert, what about your projects? I mean, you're known for repurposing and finding fabulous old things, but you, how much of your work has been custom pieces? And, and what are some of the workrooms that you've worked with? I mean, not my name, but do you have upholsters that you use? Do you have iron workers? I'd love to have a sense. Sure. I think that um, 
historically for an awfully long time, my projects would break down as custom would be carpets, unless we're using van, vintage or antique, but like really for like on a, on a large project, I would say, you know, the rugs that are going to be vintage and antiques are going to be, you know, special rugs in, in, in certain areas, like in a living room or an entry or the master or something like that. But all the other carpets and rugs would be custom with, you know, anywhere from three months to nine, six lead times. And then all the upholstery is custom designed and custom built. And then all the uh, window treatments and that sort of stuff. So for us, that kind of like core, what I call almost like an extension of the architecture foundation of a project, that's all custom. And then we, you know, use a lot of antique and vintage furniture for everything else. And then we get into custom when we can't find things antique and vintage or certain antique and vintage things don't really translate to today's life. Like you can find a lot of great 20th century bedside tables, but they're made for beds that were like 14 inches high. And now beds are 26 inches high. So we make a lot of custom bedside tables. Uh, Also, you know, the way that we entertain and all that today, it's very hard to find great dining tables, great coffee tables, a lot of those kinds of things. So we tend to make a lot of things like that or specific things where we just haven't been able to find something that we really wanted to use. And, and then um, in terms of workrooms, you know, we have a huge stable of people in New York and the New York area. We have a great custom furniture maker in Massachusetts. We work with people in Los Angeles and Seattle and kind of like all over the country and also Europe. Okay, great. Thad, what about you? So from the very beginning, my whole philosophy was, you know, creating spaces that were unique and, and very specific, you know, for a particular location was, was a thing that I really latched on to early on and for the client. And I found that many things, as much, I, I love going into the business. I came from this very modernist kind of high tech, you know, I arrived in New York in the late 70s and it was very minimalist, but I've always loved antiques and incorporated those in. I agree with with what Robert's saying, and is that if we can't find it or if it doesn't suit a particular function, we have to make it. And whether it's a sofa or, you know, sometimes we do these banquettes that are 12 or 15 feet long. So, you know, that would be custom made. Window treatments, uh, like Robert was saying, those are custom made. There's a lot of things that require to be custom made so that they actually fit into the apartment. Right. Others are more of, of like, uh, you know, a design decision. And there was something that my, my very first mentor, Robert Bray, told me. He said, if you're going to be going out and you're specifying furniture from other designers, he said, primarily living ones, he said, they will identify that person and not you with, with the project. Mm-hmm. And that was like when I was like in my early 20s. And I heard that loud and clear. So I always felt like it was important to do custom along with vintage and antiques. And there's no proportion. Sometimes it's 30% custom. Sometimes it's 50. It just really depends. But I've been hearing from designers over the last few years that many of their clients, especially the newer clients, the younger clients, didn't understand the need for custom. They were impatient. They didn't want to wait four months to get you know, the upholstery done or have the rug shipped in from India. Has that been a problem or is it the fact that your uh, clients, all of you are sophisticated enough, they're used to it, they understand the importance and the value of unique pieces? So Madeline, why don't you start with that? Well, I think it is true that when you work for a, an older or more sophisticated client, they 
they've developed a level of patience and appreciation for fine things that perhaps a newly minted millionaire doesn't quite understand yet. But I always, I always try to encourage even my younger clients to wait to buy something unique. Why do you want to have the same thing that everyone else has? And why do you want to buy something that is so either poorly made or of so little value that months from now, even a year from now, it will be absolutely worthless. And truth be told, a lot of these companies uh, who shall go nameless, like Restoration Hardware, um, <laughs> they they have extraordinary lead times as well. You can't order something from a lot of these off-the-shelf companies and expect to get something overnight. And the difference between waiting eight weeks for, um, is it okay to say crap on the air? I think so. Okay, thank you. Or waiting for something along those lines and waiting an extra few weeks to get something that is truly custom made that fits your, your life, your home, your lifestyle, that's in the fabric you want, that's in the proportions that are correct, that are has the pitch that is most comfortable for your body, to me, there's no contest. And I think if you explain it well, and they understand the difference in quality and cost, the differential is not that great. I think people have to be educated. Sometimes the cost is not that much different either for, you know, a lot of this ready-made stuff is not inexpensive. It's not at all. Right. And Robert, what about in terms of your clients? Well, I would say, first of all, I'm impatient. And when we're doing a project, you know, all the sort of like ready-made things that might eat, that could possibly appeal to us, which would not be restoration hardware, except for like, you know, certain parts of a project. But like, you know, if you went to the D&D building or 200 likes or whatever, and you went to the better showrooms, they often have 24-week lead times. I don't even like this stuff, but I'm certainly not going to wait 24 weeks for something that I don't even like. And... um and I think that for me, and I think it's, this would be true of Madeline and Fat as well, I mean, our time horizons on our projects tend to be a minimum of nine to 12 months up to, you know, one and a half to two, right. three, four years. So there's time. Right. People you also, have to be efficient also, about it. Right. Right. So, so we always have the time to do that. I mean, the longest lead time generally is rugs and they, they oftentimes take nine months or a year or something like that. But so we just manage our projects to account for it. And we tell people up front, like, you need to make these decisions by these certain dates. And, you know, and they want to. They, our clients definitely want special things. They don't want to, you know, walk into a hotel and see, you know, things in a hotel. That, that, in, that are in their house. They just don't want right. stuff like that. Right. They want right. special stuff. Right. So, um, and, and, but really, I think they're just as impatient as anybody else. I mean, let's face it, we live in, you know, an instant gratification society. And, and oftentimes we have projects for people that are amazing projects that have to be done in three months. And we have to do stuff that's readily available. And we have to push our vendors to do custom things and all right. that kind of stuff. But if it's not that, there's the time. And then it's just about managing it to allow for custom because we're definitely going to do it. Right, right. But also... You know, things have changed now with coronavirus. I mean, a lot of workrooms are shut down. A lot of offices are shut down. So how are you going to handle that? That Like, like let's say somebody's moving in. I, I hate to think of anybody moving in, in this period or whatever, but, you know, essential things do happen. How do you handle that? Are, they, are you worried about your workrooms going under? Are, you know, I know certain clients and even designers are saying, you know, they don't want to place orders because they're not sure that this artisan or this vendor is going to be able to fulfill the order four months from now and they don't want to put the money down. So how are you guys dealing with that? That, that let's start with you. 
You know, that's a good question, Michael, because a, that, I don't know. And we won't know until we actually go into the office. We've reached out and, and talked to some of the vendors that we were working with and that we have things that are in, in the works that are being fabricated. I reached out and, and spoke to Balecki a few days ago and you know they've been around for like a hundred years. I hope they don't go anywhere. But um, you know, they were they were going in still just for a few hours just to kind of take care of business. Mm-hmm. But I think that we at least I'll speak for myself, there's a lot of unknowns still. And while we've been in touch with our core of our custom work, those those people that I've known for 20 or 30 years that still make furniture, they're still they're still working. I mean, they're still fine, and it seems like they're going to come back because they're all small. They range, my metal guy has like two helpers, but they have like 8,000 square feet. They, they're in Brooklyn. And the my furniture maker, not upholstery, but metal and wood and those things, he has 10 or 12,000 square feet with just a few people. So in terms of production, and things going right back and being completed and moving forward, my gut is telling me that those smaller workrooms that we've depended on for the last 30 years will be still a good source to depend on Mm -hmm. moving forward. Right. I have to say, though, I really am terribly concerned about our industry. And Mm -hmm. if we don't come through this supporting the companies who have been producing beautiful things for so many years, I think it's going to be a real tragedy for all of us, whether it's a small fabric company or a furniture maker or an artisan weaver or a rug manufacturer. I think it's incumbent upon all of us to, to do whatever we can to support those workrooms, those vendors, those companies. It makes it makes our industry richer and more varied. And I don't want to get to a place where it's merely survival of the fittest. And by fittest, it's the biggest. And where you only have large manufacturers producing volume product as opposed to the smaller workrooms. And that, while I agree with you that the the smaller workrooms may be the ones to survive if we don't support them by by creating our own product and custom product and keeping them busy and occupied they won't make it because they're not big enough to rely on reserves of funds that can keep them going through a very lean time and and goodness knows this is a very lean time for them yeah no, and I think it's, I mean, I think the design world is, you know, all the designers are really anxious to support small firms and artisans and that thing. But you are putting down your clients' money. They're the ones who are paying for this. And have you noticed, like Robert, have you noticed any resistance on the part of your, I mean, this is all still fairly new, I understand, but have you noticed resistance on part of your clients to, you know, when you say, oh, I think you should get this special thing, have any of them said to you, oh, well, I, you know, how am I going to know that 16 weeks from now, this company's not going to go bankrupt. Not really, but we vet that for our clients. So mm-hmm. we're very proactive and I really spend my clients' money just like it's my own money and I'm very right. diligent about that. So I would never, and I'm sure Thad and, and Madeline are exactly the same, I just wouldn't take my clients' money for something that I didn't believe was going to happen. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just 
apropos to like what you were talking about with vendors, I, I would say 90% of my vendors worldwide are small businesses with less than 25 right. or 50 employees. And I do think they're all generally viable. They all have business. They all will have business when the pause is over. It's just about getting through the pause and hopefully the, you know, the government incentives and all that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. you know, will help. In Europe, they, they, they don't know that they have the incentives. They, they said, you know, let's just close down the country and, you know, we'll do, deal about the money later. So I think that that's going to become a big fiasco in Italy and France where I right. do a lot of business. Right. But um, they also don't have the high leverage that we have and they tend not, you know, we're of a highly leveraged culture and we need to have cash all the time. They're not so much that way. So, uh, but my clients have generally, they really do trust us and they look to us to guide them. And it is the biggest problem. It's, you know, are you going to, I bought, you know, a Charlotte Perrion cabinet at auction, like at 10 days before the United States was closed down and I paid oh, right. for it. My client paid for it. It was like $75,000 and you know, I, I have it, but I have to get it here. I don't know when we're going to get it. I mean, I have time. So there's a lot of things like that. I have a rug that we ordered 12 months ago to get in time for the summer you know, for this coming summer for the Hamptons and now it's delayed and, you know, it's been right. delayed for already 45 days and they don't know. And so we just have to monitor it. And then what I think is, is that this is the new world. Like we have to embrace it and accept right. it and find new ways to uh, organize it. And, you know, our business every day is a lot of damage control and now this is the new damage and we have to control it. Right. Hi, everybody, and thanks for tuning in. I hope you're enjoying the Cherish podcast. My name is Anna Brockway, and I am the co-founder and president of Cherish. Professional designers are invited to join the Cherish trade program to access special benefits like net pricing and a special trade-only customer service hotline. New this year, we're also introducing a loyalty program where designers earn $75 in cash for every $5,000 they spend on Cherish. We do hope you'll join us. And in order to do so, please visit cherish.com backslash trade. That's spelled C-H-A-I-R-I-S-H dot com backslash trade. And now back to the show. And Madeline, would, are your clients as understanding in terms of the delays and things like that? I mean, it seems like people have to accept what's going on, but I don't know. Rich people sometimes live in a different world. Uh, I, I agree. That is that is absolutely true. And they can be very demanding and multiply that by the expectations that are evident in some of my Hollywood clients who truly think you can build a house in, a, in an afternoon because you can build a stage set that looks like the Las Vegas Strip in a week. So <laughs> I do, uh, I, I do have to encourage my clients to be patient and they you know everybody wants things now it's a very veruca salt world and it's and i don't blame people for that we we do live in an age of instant gratification but i think in the long run people if they understand quality and they understand what they're getting and they've been educated by us by us as designers and connoisseurs of beautiful things to be patient and to wait for the best because that's worth waiting for, then then I then they do. And right now everyone has been extraordinarily understanding. And I'm holding my breath to see if that continues. Obviously people initially can't pitch a fit or throw a tantrum, 
because their rug was delayed due to coronavirus. But I think if this continues for months and months and months and the the piece that they've ordered or the thing that they've been waiting for or the fabric that's supposed to be woven, especially for them, continues to be delayed, I can see people getting a bit pesky and and difficult because there is a lot at stake. And in some cases, it's the difference of whether or not they can move into their home or whether they're sleeping on an air mattress or that bed that you've put into production six months ago. So I, I think right now everyone's being fairly calm and understanding and realizing that this is outside our control. This is not due to our ineptitude or our inability to manage our projects. It's something that we have no, we, have, we can't take any responsibility for. So for the time being, I think people are rather, uh, rather copacetic about it. Mm-hmm. But that, how about your clients? Because you have some masters of the universe clients in New York, and you know, it's a tough town. Um, how are your clients handling all of this? You know, we were really lucky. The timing couldn't have been better. The, the Thursday before we shut our office down, which was six weeks ago, tomorrow, was the, the clients started moving in March 1, and they actually finished. It was like a three-week move. But that was a three-year project, and mm-hmm. that was great. I mean, they're in there and like it's done. There's even a few pieces of art hanging. So they're happy. Everyone's happy. So right now we're doing a lot of drawing, mm-hmm. which is not unusual, but it is a little unusual that we're doing a lot. It's like 85% architecture right now and 15% decorating. So we're working on this house in St. Bart. So it's good because there's a couple of people in the office can pretty much draw. We can do Zoom design meetings. Mm-hmm. So no one's no one's yelling and screaming and it's mostly because of the where we're at with our projects and we also are entering a we were entering a period where not that things were slowing down but they were getting very manageable and i was looking forward to actually taking off a number of weeks this summer um oh. you know Hope because you weren't planning to travel <laughs> 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 so I would say everyone is being very, very considerate and very nice. And those clients that you describe, that a couple of those are always hope your families, they check in. They're like, hope your family's well. This is, you know, such odd times. And, you know, hopefully, you know, that we'll see a silver lining to all of this. And I think it's not just... I think people from all walks of life and from all occupations, from factory workers to, you know, designers to, you know, everyone on the planet is really, I think, I hope, I am really looking at this pause and saying, if, if this, horrible, this horrible thing that's going on right now, I can't do anything about it other than what they're asking me to do, and that's shelter in place, wear masks. Gloves, you know, do that. Right. I think if 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 there's nothing positive that comes out of it, it will be, for me personally, horrible. It will be it'll be something in my lifetime that I will reg- I will regret it the rest of my life if there's not a very very powerful strong takeaway from this experience. Sad. Will you tell me what you feel the silver lining might be in this? I would I would love to know what that is so I can start looking for it. For me. Again, I'm like so grateful and I feel so good that I can coast for a little while. I mean, just, you know, 
I can take care of things, take care of business. So I think that's there's some comfort level. I think if you're, you know, if you're scrambling and you have kids that don't have food, you know, there, there's all these levels. But for me personally, it's a time that I've been using, especially the last, the first two or three weeks, I really struggled because I was fighting it. And I kept looking at that like it was an enemy that was trying to, you know, kill me. And it's not an enemy. It's a virus that's trying to stay alive. You know, it's doing the only thing it knows how to do. And that's to, you know, replicate. Grow. Right. Yeah. So I'm looking at it like I've had a, this is the first time in my life since I was like 17 or 18. I, I got on a treadmill. You know, I was telling someone, a friend recently, I didn't, I didn't work very hard and I didn't study in high school. I was a very average high school student. The minute I found college and design, I was like, oh, holy shit. This is amazing that all these crazy people love what I love. And I got on a treadmill of school and working. And, and, and I've been on that treadmill since I was 18. So I'm off the treadmill for a few weeks. So it's allowing me to just reflect on my life and what's important. You know, I love work. There's a lot more important things I want to do in life. Yeah. But to get back to the more practical side of the business, I wanted to ask you guys about, you know, if custom pieces, if workrooms and weavers and all these specialty people are suffering during this time, which I imagine they will and following through, what do you think the alternative is? It's going to be something that will work for you, for your clients, whatever, for your projects. Are there alternatives? What's going to happen? Are, they, are these artisans going to have to restart, go bankrupt, restart? What do you think is going to happen? I mean, and I don't expect anyone to have a definitive answer here, but just something. I don't think that, I don't see it changing that much for me. I think that my vendors seem pretty solid mm-hmm. and they have a lot of work once they're allowed to work. And I believe in them and they believe in me. I've always been a good rainmaker for them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, I just have faith that it's all going to work out. I, I, I think the biggest thing is just adapting. Like we, things have changed and we had all these issues about working remotely and, you know, you know, being able to ship stuff and all that sort of stuff. It's just, you know, we, it's going to have to get all flushed out and we need to be uh, flexible and adjustable. We have to teach our clients to be flexible and, ad- and adjustable. And, you know, like one of the things for me that we, we've always done this, but we'll probably have to do it more is, you know, if a client if we're ready to do an installation, somebody didn't come, like we'll come up with some other th- alternative right. that, satisfies the need temporarily there will be a cost to it and you know that'll be okay and they'll either do it or they'll just wait but we give our clients options that can sort of like make up for the difference until like the real thing comes and you know I mean, but, but things are going to present themselves i mean if it, if it goes on and becomes impossible impossible and you know what is a rug dealer going to do if suddenly a, a rug that was supposed to take three to three or four months now is taking nine or 12 months and then really it ends up being two years like you know Right. Is the client allowed to get their money back? Uh, you know, are we uh, all that stuff? Those are hopefully we don't get there. So, but we'll see. But we just have to adapt. Mm-hmm. That's what I think. What about you, Thad? I think that I pretty much I feel pretty confident that most of my vendors will make it mm-hmm. through this. And when I say through this, I'm kind of I you know I make up my own timeline, kind of based on some you know what we're being told. Right. But I, you know, I think that they will make it through and there will be guidelines and it's going to be 
you know, if the production slows down or if we go to inspect a piece, there might be restrictions about that. Like if I go to Jonas to look at upholstery mm-hmm. that they're making, you know, maybe it will be more difficult to get in there when I want to, you know, usually I like to go at nine or 10 in the morning. I mean, so I think there's going to be all of those things. And I think there's going to be, have to be a lot more communication between people expressing what they want and what they need. And I'm, and I don't mean between designer and client, but all of these vendors that we've kind of, you know, been kind of very authoritative in, you know, giving them drawings and, you know, we, there's going to have to be better communication. Right. And I think that even besides with vendors, I think it goes to like a discussion that we had for the first time uh, this morning on a, a regular Zoom call with the office where everyone's on is that, you know, moving through the city, we're, we're going to have to, com- I'm going to have to communicate with strangers saying, I'm, hi, excuse me, I'm moving to the left. I mean, we can't run into each other like we were doing. Right. We can't right. brush up. Right. I mean, people, right. you know, spitting on you and everything else. So I think it, I think communication, um, right. really amping you know, up and, and letting people know this is what I need or this is what I right. want. And, and one of the luxuries of working with workrooms and artisans for a long time, decades, like you were saying, is you almost develop a shorthand. You know, you can say, you know, you want this and they know exactly what you mean. Now, every even people that have been used to working with you have I agree with you that you're going to have to be much more clear and specific and communicate like you have to say to someone in the grocery store please back up you know <laughs> I think you're going to have to you know everything from delivery men to the, the people at the upholstery showroom I mean it's I think we're going to have to do a lot more talking and a lot more communicating and being clear and you guys may have to do if you have to find a new outlet or something, a new workroom, going to be, have to do more drawings, whatever, um, working with whatever, the yeah. fabric people, that kind of thing, you know, transmitting color via the computer isn't always the same. You say, oh no, that's too orange. And yeah. then, you know, it's, it's, it's going to be a little more complicated, I think. But um, I think it is already. I mean, I, I feel like, I feel like working from home during Corona is exhausting. These Zoom calls, like one day we had Zoom calls and go-to meetings from 10 a.m. until 4 p.m. I was exhausted. Yeah. I agree with you. Now, the, you, you. It's great and it's wonderful. And, and we've already like, you know, we have to the extent that I feel we can, we have embraced technology for years and we do so many things with all of our vendors in the tri-state area, on the West Coast, in Europe and all that all the time. But there's a portion in our business that it's the tangible thing you have to deal with and you just... I don't think technology will ever be able to re- replace right. that. And that's the part that it's okay for now that that eight hour day or whatever it was of all those meetings, they were really helpful and they kept, you know, we have two or three big construction jobs that are fortunate enough to be able to keep working. And, and we were able to meet the clients and the architects and all this kind of stuff and keep them going. But I felt afterward, if this is the future of my business, if it's going to become entirely virtual, I don't really want to do this anymore. It's like, I don't find it doesn't, it doesn't appeal to me. There's no substitute for seeing these things no, in person. I have to go to my to my my workroom sometimes. I just have to. I've got to sit in a chair. I've got to look at a fabric. I you know I'm famous for saying like I love to rub fabrics all over my body to see if I like them. I I want to do that, and I want my clients to do it too because that's how you create comfort in a home. You can't do that on a computer screen. Gotcha. Now, Madeline, I I, I think there was something you said earlier that I think is 
very true, but I'm not sure how it's going to play out is this has only been going on for only been going on for six weeks, but if it extends, how impatient or cantankerous are clients going to get? And my question to you, and actually all of you, but especially you, Madeline, start with you, is what are the alternatives when your clients start getting cranky and want delivery? I mean, I'm not saying, heaven forfend, that you would ever have to order something from Resto Hardware, but have you had thought about this? Or do you have um, resources that you would turn to in a lesser than ideal situation? I, I haven't given that much thought because that's not the work I do. And right. people don't come to me because they want an, an Insta home. Mm-hmm. People don't come to me be, uh, saying that I, I need you to completely redo my house and, and have it finished in three months. I just don't do that kind of work. My projects, uh, most of them go on for years and, and it's things, I don't mean to say it's a laborious process or that it's so painstaking as to be uh, you know, an aggravation, but that we find things when we find them. Uh, a client once, uh, I tell this story to my staff all the time, they said, why haven't you found my dining room chandelier? And I said, it's not as though I found it and kept it a secret. Believe me, you'll be the first to know. <laughs> I'm, I'm looking for the right thing. And That's a great line. I'm going to use that. <laughs> as the you know the French have the expression le mot juste, which is the right word, and we have l'objet juste. It's the right object. I, I don't want to shortchange the the ultimate result of a project. So we're looking for just the right thing, and when we find it, so uh, the the clients are thrilled because they know we've actually put effort and thought and energy into locating what I feel is. The most beautiful option, uh, whether it's you know within their budget, within the proportion, within the um, the opportunities that we have to find beautiful things. But my interiors are a collection of things that we've discovered and found, and I think people come to us for that, and they come to me because they know I want to design a fabric or design a beautiful rug and have it made by weavers in in Antigua. They're not coming to me for uh, for something that is more immediate. And so right. I think I'm in a very uh, fortunate position that way because they wouldn't have been my clients in the first place. Um, so I, I think they'll be uh, much more um, understanding. But yes, how long does this go on and how long can we keep these small workrooms in business? That is the uh, $64,000 question. Michael, the one thing that I thought was... Mm-hmm. I just was thinking about as Madeline was talking is that I actually think for me anyways, and and I do think that Thad and Madeline would probably agree or or, or I'd hope that they would, is that I actually, when I sit here and I think, I feel like all of our small vendors are so well positioned to manage into the future and to adapt to the new life that's, you know, much more, uh, has all this new protocol about safety and everything. Because I think about my upholsterer, my main upholsterer, is in a, and if, and you know sometimes we use Jonas too, but my main upholsterer is in Long Island City. He's got like a fourteen thousand square foot space that's very loft like industrial. There's only ten people working there. They're already social distancing, and by the way, they already wear masks too. They have mm-hmm. for years because it's right. dusty and there's a lot of right. stuff in the air. I think about you know my favorite custom furniture maker up in Massachusetts. They have like a twenty five thousand square foot old industrial building. They have like twelve guys work there. Everybody's in a different space. And so they're really like actually positioned to 
to carry on and to get back to work quickly in a safe way in many ways much more easily than these big large companies that use you know assembly and all that kind of stuff right. that our people don't use because it's right. all made by one or two people by hand. Right. right. But that means the work has to come. And right now people are scared. And even though our clients are at a very, uh, you know, high, high uh, wealth percentage, th- people are not shopping right now. People are not, they may be focused and hunker down at home, but they're not, uh, people don't, f- I don't think they're, they're, reaching for the phone and calling their favorite decorator and saying, let's party. I I think 50% of our jobs are at pause and 50% are going. I do have a long, old, long-term client who just called me the other day and bought a new apartment in Tribeca. And we're going to have our first meeting next week, which I feel incredibly thankful and grateful for. And they're lovely people who are very kind of like old fashioned, solid people. They, it's it's the whole thing, the way that it happened is so meaningful and hopeful to me because these are not people who they don't throw money around, they're conservative, they're thoughtful, they're kind, they're all about their family, and they have the courage to pony up for like a pretty well, serious apartment just right well, now. Good. That's, so that's I, terrific. I, I think it will happen. And I have my 50%, you know, 50% of people got freaked out and this not an none of them are going to cancel their projects. They're just going to wait it out a little bit. And then the other 50, like they're doing it and they're committed and they're you know, sending right, the money. The problem is with some of those workrooms, they, they can't all afford to, to wait yeah. it out. Sure. Of course. No, for sure. I, I agree. And yeah. so, you know, my concern is for those people and can they, can they make it? Yeah. And obviously our hope is. Right. Right. Dad, how do you, how are you feeling? I mean, you were thinking of slowing back down a little anyway, as you said, but uh, are you optimistic about the fall, for example? I'm, um, I'm optimistic. I'm also, I think, a realist. Mm-hmm. And I just try to put everything, I mean, I'm not reading the post. I mean, the, the few places I go for news, you know, I, I think the earliest, not going back to normal, I think we're right. talking. It's going to be a different normal. Late fall, winter, if we're lucky. Is you know this is I'm preparing for that if we're lucky winter. Mm-hmm. I think it's going to my gut based on history is that the election has to happen and the inauguration has to happen, and that people are not going to put into they're not going to go into first gear until mid January. Again, I'm you know I'm a good business person, but I I'm not a businessman and I'm not a financial person. But I think I think it's going to be at least the startup is after the election and the inauguration is going to be important as a, for the, for the country. And then we have all of this, you know, we haven't even talked, we have to heal as a country and forget about a planet. We have to come together and with all the losses and heal, you know, uh, talk about the environment again, because when you see these photographs, I think one of the most powerful things from this coronavirus is, to see these images all over the globe from Los Angeles and the hills to the George Washington Bridge in New York and and these cities in China where the air is crystal clear. You can see the Himalayas. You can see New York City precisely. You can see all of LA is crystal clear. It's like, it's because there's not all the cars, you know? And so I think the working remotely the clean air, the environment, this, I mean, it's all playing in and it's a one big 
gumbo. It's one big thing that is all, it's, it's all in one pot. It's all together. That I'm certain of. The, the climate change and viruses, all of that go hand in hand. And very little has been written and talked about. But, right. you know, people saw this coming five years ago, 10 years ago, that as yeah. climate changes, there's going to be more uh, bacteria and viruses. And, and we have to come up with the science to deal with that. Yeah. 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 Madeline, does having those clear skies in LA make you feel more optimistic? <laughs> Is there a song there somewhere? <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I, I, I'm not saying you're wrong, Thad, but, you know, January is like 10 months from now. And I, I do think that what Madeline is saying, some of these workrooms and artisans aren't going to last for 10 months. So what's the in-between? Yeah. You know, it's like, I mean, it's great, Robert, that you have a new client. And I have heard from other designers that have gotten some projects. And I actually do believe, Robert, that you're right, that coming out of this, people are going to value their homes more than ever. Um, but I think there are, there are companies and, and look, some of the large fabric companies will make it. A lot right. of the fabric companies and, and houses did not make it through 2008. Right. There were dozens and dozens of, of smaller workrooms, uh, smaller furniture makers, showrooms, and, uh, and fabric houses that could not weather that economic right. storm. And that was right. 2008. And right. that looks like a, a walk in the park compared to what we're yeah, experiencing right. now. And I a lot of showrooms were having trouble just the last couple of years. And and with rents the way they are right. and and the cost of health insurance for employees, workers' comp for employees, I think some of these fixed costs, if they cannot be adjusted, these companies are not going to be able to right. sustain their production and their rents and their showrooms. And a lot of them will go under. I think a lot of designers are not going to make it because they don't have either the the built-in wherewithal or the foundation, the experience, mm-hmm. the clientele that will get them through this. And I I hate to be pessimistic, but and I know Michael, you were involved in that that exchange with some other designers that discussed the Stockdale paradox, which is one of the most profoundly interesting things I've I've heard in the last few weeks, which is based on the Teachings of James Stockdale, who was a um, a naval officer shot down in Vietnam during the war. He became a prisoner of war at the Hanoi Hilton for seven years. And when he asked how he survived it, he spoke to the fact that he was able to temper positivity with realism. Mm-hmm. As, as you mentioned, Thad, that the optimists who were imprisoned and tortured in the Hanoi Hilton, they all, they all expired. They died. They thought oh, we're going to get out by Christmas and then Christmas would come and and they wouldn't have been released. But Stockdale realized that he had to be realistic about his circumstances and he didn't give up his positivity or his faith that he would ultimately uh, be a free man. But we also have to be realistic about this and we have to see that there are going to be profound and elemental changes to our to our industry, to our world, to business as we as we know it and i just think we need to be somewhat mindful and aware of how that is going to affect all of us um it's unrealistic to think that los angeles will become so enamored of clear skies that people are going to stop driving right um, 405 is still there 
yeah. So listen, I completely, I totally agree with you, Madeline. And I agree with that. I mean, and don't get me wrong for one minute. I mean, you know, and let's look at ourselves and our industry. I mean, I can't last forever at 50%. I, I won't. I mean, I will, I've been really, really lucky and fortunate. And I, you know, we, we had to lay two people off whose jobs were really completely dependent on having an office, which we no longer have. And we don't know when it's ever going to be. But other than that, I've maintained my entire design staff and we're working hard and all that, but we're working at 50%. And I can guarantee you that I'm not making any money. I mean, I, I'm not going to get rich. And, and ultimately if it doesn't go over 50% at some point, like, you know, I'll be in financial trouble too, as will many, many people that are our colleagues. It's like, it's, I don't, I'm not like, I'm optimistic and I've been, and I started this, you know, six weeks ago thinking like, holy shit, my life is over. Like I'm screwed. I like just, and, and, it, and it was actually a good process for me because it really centered me and made me think, you know what, whatever this is going to be, I'm going to be okay. I can do let I can, I can, you know, survive with less and um, I'm just going to have to adjust and adapt through this and figure it out. What doesn't kill us will make us stronger. 100%. And this I is totally survival agree. of the fittest yeah. right now. Totally agree. And I think we have to be smart. We have to be patient. And I think we have to be fully prepared to see that it may not be business as usual. And if business as usual is ever a thing again, whether it takes a year, 18 months, two years, or never, that we may become adjusted to a you know, as everyone's saying, a new normal and and then we'll adapt and adopt or we will, you know, <laughs> probably fallen by the wayside. Yeah. So this is so cheerful, this conversation. No. <laughs> I think, Michael, no. you keep coming back to, I just want to speak for one second mm-hmm. about of it course. because I thought about it prior to today. If some of those, if, if we're not able to do the custom pieces that we would like because of timing, budget considerations, the fact that those people weren't even there. And we, we would naturally go to, I think, something like a beautiful, simple B&B Italia sofa, if they're still around. Right, um, right. We, we ass- I mean, it's an Italian-based company. We don't know if any of these large companies are going to be around. But what I'm saying is that and we've talked about it a little bit in the office, is that we can, e- I think it is about being adaptable during this period. Well, really for, I mean, being ad- adaptable, uh, being a person that is flexible and adaptable mm-hmm. has always been a very good trait in people. And right. it's something that I've tried to, I've had to work being such a control freak. I've tried, I've worked very hard at being flexible and adaptable. And we're going to have to do it. And if that means going and shopping online for a special sofa or coffee table at Cherish, um, Mm -hmm. Picasso, any of these Mm -hmm. these e-commerce sites, which is what they are, um, we know that we know that we can turn out a good Thad Hayes Inc. product that represents our brand that may have fewer custom pieces and still be true to who we are. Right. As there were more tornadoes and hurricanes and disasters before this, I said, look, I fly a lot. My carbon footprint is not good. I've lived in tiny apartments, which is good, but mm-hmm. you know, driving and everything else. So let's narrow it down to the US. 
So we did, we've been practicing that for about 12 or 18 months. So we're not shipping overseas. Mm-hmm. But, but even a consolidated truck from California to New York is a lot of gasoline. So right. what, we, what we've started doing uh, in the last six weeks is let's keep it to the Northeast, primarily New York. That's our, that's our zone of, of shopping for these vintage and antique pieces. And I know it's very narrow, but I, we start looking and it's like, there's a million things available in New York. Well, I was going to say, it's not like you're only shopping Cincinnati. That yeah, would be a little harder. <laughs> I will say that the, one of the, the great answers and solutions to making custom things is buying vintage things. Local. So okay, you're, still, right. you're, right. you're, you're still getting Obviously. something unique. You're still getting something that is probably better made than anything you can, you know, buy today uh, that's, that's made and mass produced in, in China or, or North Carolina. You're going to get a higher quality product and then you can reinvent it in a very custom way, whether it means just reupholstering it or refinishing it or adding exactly. some legs or, 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 right you know, making subtle changes. But for me, the the answer to not being able to do custom is always looking to vintage and antiques right. because right. at least there's something of, of true value there. Right, right. Well, I think it's just been a fascinating discussion. I think one of the things, and it, Madeline, you said something which I know maybe will surprise you to hear that I found very encouraging because you're more encouraging than you realize is I do think that in terms of, all your workrooms that you work with, you know, the custom rugs, the custom draperies, all of that stuff. It seems like all of you agree that there are enough clients out there who are who are educated, you've educated them or whatever, they're sophisticated. They really want something special. And I and I don't see that changing. The way they get it may change. The long it may take longer for them to get those special rooms, special items, special, you know, making their house special. But it seems to me that you all agree that there is a clientele that understands the need for custom work. Is that correct? Yes. I, th- I, think, th- I think very often those clients need to be educated and brought mm-hmm. along and instructed and encouraged. But I but think you're... if you show them and if you lead the way, they will right. follow. Right, right. Good. And Dad, you would agree. Right. Right. And I think that's probably what's going to save these, not all of them, God knows some people are going to be hurt and some people are going to go out of business. But I, it seems to me that it's because of you guys educating and showing your clients, you know, and creating work that they respond to when they come to you because they've seen your work, you know, online, on Instagram, in the magazines, in your books, that they appreciate what you do. And I think as long as you keep doing it and keep educating and as Madeline said, bringing them along, I do think there's going to be a future for custom pieces and custom design. Well, I want to thank you all. I want, my, I want to thank my wonderful guests, Madeline Stewart, Thad Hayes, and Robert Stillen. And thank you all for listening to the Cherish Podcast. Thanks for listening to the Cherish Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend or colleague, or even better, go to the iTunes store and post a review. We appreciate your help in spreading the word. And we would love your ideas for future episodes. Please email us at podcast at cherish.com. The Cherish Podcast is produced by Britta Muller and edited by Max Solomon of Hanger Studios in New York. 
Until next time.